Section 4 of Zigzags of Treachery and Other Stories by Dashiell Hammett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Girl with the Silver Eyes, Part 2. 11. After Porky had cleared out, I leaned back in my chair and burned half a dozen Fatimas over the job. The girl had gone first with the twenty thousand dollars, and then the poet had gone, and both had gone, whether permanently or not, to the white shack. On its face the job was an obvious affair. The girl had given Pangburn the work, to the extent of having him forge a check against his brother-in-law's account, and then, after various moves whose value I couldn't determine at the time, they had gone into hiding together. There were two loose ends to be taken care of. One of them, the finding of the confederate who had mailed the letters to Pangburn and who had taken care of the girl's baggage, was in the Baltimore branch's hands. The other was who had ridden in the taxicab that I had traced from the girl's apartment to the Marquis Hotel. That might not have any bearing upon the job, or it might. Suppose I could find a connection between the Marquis Hotel and the White Shack. That would make a completed chain of some sort. I searched the back of the telephone directory and found the roadhouse number. Then I went up to the Marquis Hotel. The girl on duty at the hotel switchboard when I got there was one with whom I had done business before. "'Who's been calling Half Moon Bay numbers?' I asked her. "'My God!' She leaned back in her chair and ran a pink hand gently over the front of her rigidly waved red hair. I got enough to do without remembering every call it goes through. This ain't a boarding house. We have more than one call a week. You don't have many Half Moon Bay calls, I insisted, leaning an elbow on the counter, letting a folded five-spot peep out between the fingers of one hand. You ought to remember any you've had lately. I'll see, she sighed, as if willing to do her best on a hopeless task. She ran through her tickets. Here's one, from room 522, a couple of weeks ago. What number was called? Half Moon Bay, 51. That was the roadhouse number. I passed over the five spot. Is 522 a permanent guest? Yes, Mr. Kilcourse. He's been here three or four months. What is he? I don't know. A perfect gentleman, if you ask me. That's nice. What does he look like? Tall and elegant. Be yourself, I pleaded. What does he look like? He's a young man, but his hair is turning gray. He's dark and handsome. Looks like a movie actor. Bull Montana? I asked as I moved off toward the desk. The key to 522 was in its place in the rack. I sat down where I could keep an eye on it. Perhaps an hour later, a clerk took it out and gave it to a man who did look something like an actor. He was a man of thirty or so, with dark skin and dark hair that showed gray around the ears. He stood a good six feet of fashionably dressed slenderness. Carrying the key, he disappeared into an elevator. I called up the agency then and asked the old man to send Dick Foley over. Ten minutes later, Dick arrived. He's a little shrimp of a Canadian, there isn't a hundred and ten pounds of him, who's the smoothest shadow I've ever seen, and I've seen most of them. 
I have a bird here I want tailed, I told Dick. His name is Kilcourse, and he's in room 522. Stick around outside, and I'll give you the spot on him. I went back to the lobby and waited some more. At eight o'clock, Kilcourse came down and left the hotel. I went after him for half a block, far enough to turn him over to Dick, and then went home, so that I would be within reach of a telephone if Porky Grout tried to get in touch with me. No call came from him that night. 12. When I arrived at the agency the next morning, Dick was waiting for me. What luck, I asked. Damnedest. The little Canadian talks like a telegram when his peace of mind is disturbed, and just now he was decidedly peevish. Took me two blocks. Shook me. Only taxi in sight. Think he made you? No. Wise head. Playing safe. Try him again, then. Better have a car handy in case he tries the same trick again. My telephone jingled as Dick was going out. It was Porky Grout talking over the agency's unlisted line. Turn up anything? I asked. Plenty, he bragged. Good. Are you in town? Yes. I'll meet you in my rooms in twenty minutes, I said. The pasty-faced informant was fairly bloated with pride in himself when he came through the door I had left unlocked for him. His swagger was almost a cakewalk, and the side of his mouth that twitches was twisted into a knowing leer that would have fit a Solomon. I knocked it over for you, kid, he boasted. Nothing to it, for me. I went down there and talked to everybody that knowed anything, seen everything there was to see, and put the x-ray on the whole dump. I made a... Uh-huh, I interrupted. Congratulations and so forth. But just what did you turn up? Now, let me tell you. He raised a dirty hand in a traffic cop sort of gesture and blew a stream of cigarette smoke at the ceiling. Don't crowd me. I'll give you all the dope. Sure, I said. I know. You're great, and I'm lucky to have you knock off my jobs for me and all that. But is Pangburn down there? I'm getting around to that. I went down there and... Did you see Pangburn? As I was saying, I went down there and... Porky, I said, I don't give a damn what you did. Did you see Pangburn? Yes, I seen him. Fine. Now what did you see? He's camping down there with Tinstar. Him and the broad that you gave me a picture of are both there. She's been there a month. I didn't see her, but one of the waiters told me about her. I seen Pangburn myself. They don't show themselves much, stick back in Tinstar's part of the joint, where he lives, most of the time. Pangburn's been there since Sunday. I went down there and... Learn who the girl is or anything about what they're up to? No, I went down there and... All right, went down there again tonight. Call me up as soon as you know positively Pangburn is there, that he hasn't gone out. Don't make any mistakes. I don't want to come down there and scare them up on a false alarm. Use the agency's undercover line and just tell whoever answers that you won't be in town until late. That'll mean that Pangburn is there, and it'll let you call up from Joplin's without giving the play away. I got to have more dough he said as he got up. It cost. I'll file your application, I promised. Now beat it, and let me hear from you tonight the minute you're sure Pangburn is there. Then I went up to Axford's office. I think I have a line on him, 
I told the millionaire. I hope to have him where you can talk to him tonight. My man says he was there at the White Shack last night and is probably living there. If he's there tonight, I'll take you down if you want. Why can't we go down now? No, the place is too dead in the daytime for my man to hang around without making himself conspicuous. And I don't want to take any chances on either you or me showing ourselves there until we're sure we're coming face to face with Pangburn. What do you want me to do, then? Have a fast car ready tonight, and be ready to start as soon as I get word to you. Right-o. I'll be at home after 5.30. Phone me as soon as you're ready to go, and I'll pick you up. 13. At 9.30 that evening, I was sitting beside Axford on the front seat of a powerfully engined foreign car, and we were roaring down a road that led to Half Moon Bay. Porky's telephone call had come. Neither of us talked much during that ride, and the imported monster under us made it a rather short ride. Axford sat comfortable and relaxed at the wheel, but I noticed for the first time that he had a rather heavy jaw. The White Shack is a large building, square-built, of imitation stone. It is set away back from the road and is approached by two curving driveways, which together make a semicircle whose diameter is the public road. The center of this semicircle is occupied by sheds under which Joplin's patrons stow their cars, and here and there about the sheds are flower beds and clumps of shrubbery. We were still going at a fair clip when we turned into one end of this semicircle driveway, and Axford slammed on his brakes, and the big machine threw us into the windshield as it jolted into an abrupt stop, barely in time to avoid smashing in to a cluster of people who had suddenly loomed up before us. In the glow from our headlights, faces stood sharply out, white, horrified faces, furtive faces, faces that were callously curious. Below the faces, white arms and shoulders showed, and bright gowns and jewelry, against the duller background of masculine clothing. This was the first impression I got, and then by the time I had removed my face from the windshield, I realized that this cluster of people had a core, a thing about which it centered. I stood up, trying to look over the crowd's heads, but I could see nothing. Jumping down to the driveway, I pushed through the crowd. Face down on the white gravel, a man sprawled, a thin man in dark clothes, and just above his collar, where the head and neck join, was a hole. I knelt to peer into his face. Then I pushed through the crowd again, back to where Axford was just getting out of the car, the engine of which was still running. Pangman is dead. Shot. 14. Methodically, Axford took off his gloves, folded them, and put them in a pocket. Then he nodded his understanding of what I had told him, and walked toward where the crowd stood around the dead poet. I looked after him until he had vanished in the throng. Then I went winding through the outskirts of the crowd, hunting for Porky Grout. I found him standing on the porch, leaning against a pillar. I passed where he could see me, and went on around to the side of the roadhouse that afforded most shadow. In the shadows, Porky joined me. The night wasn't cool, but his teeth were chattering. Who got him? I demanded. I don't know, he whined, and that was the first thing of which I had ever known him to confess complete ignorance. I was inside, keeping an eye on the others. What others? Tin Star and some guy I'd never seen before in the broad. 
I didn't think the kid was going out. He didn't have no hat. What do you know about it? A little while after I phoned you, the girl and Pangburn came out from Joplin's part of the joint and sat down at a table around on the other side of the porch where it's fairly dark. They eat for a while, and then this other guy comes over and sits down with them. I don't know his name, but I think I saw him around town. He's a tall guy, all rung up in fancy rags. That would be Kilcourse. They talk for a while, and then Joplin joins them. They sit around the table laughing and talking for maybe a quarter of an hour. Then Pangburns gets up and goes indoors. I got a table that I can watch him from, and the place is crowded, and I'm afraid I'll lose my table if I leave it, so I don't follow the kid. He ain't got no hat, and I figure he ain't going nowhere. But he must have gone through the house and out front, because pretty soon there's a noise I thought was an auto backfire, and then the sound of a car getting away quick. And then some guy squawks that there's a dead man outside. Everybody runs out, and it's Pangburn. You dead sure that Joplin, Kilhorse, and the girl were all at the table when Pangburn was killed? Absolutely, Porky said. If this dark guy's name is Kilhorse. Where are they now? Back in Joplin's hangout. They went up there as soon as they seen Pangburn had been croaked. I had no illusions about Porky. I knew he was capable of selling me out and furnishing the poet's murderer with an alibi. But there was this about it. If Joplin, Kilcourse, or the girl had fixed him, and had fixed my informant, then it was hopeless for me to try and prove that they weren't on the rear porch when the shot was fired. Joplin had a crowd of hangers-on who would swear to anything he told them without batting an eye. There would be a dozen supposed witnesses to their presence on the rear porch. Thus, the only thing for me to do was to take it for granted that Porky was coming clean with me. Have you seen Dick Foley? I asked, since Dick had been shadowing Kilcourse. No. Hunt around and see if you can find him. Tell him I've gone up to talk to Joplin and tell him to come on up. Then you can stick around where I can get hold of you if I want you. I went in through a French window crossed an empty dance floor, and went up the stairs that led to Tin Star Joplin's living quarters in the rear second story. I knew the way, having been up there before. Joplin and I were old friends. I was going up now to give him and his friends a shakedown on the off chance that some good might come of it, though I knew that I had nothing on any of them. I could have tied something on the girl, of course, but not without advertising the fact that the dead poet had forged his brother-in-law's signature to a check, and that was a no-go. "'Come in,' a heavy, familiar voice called when I rapped on Joplin's living room door. I pushed the door open in one end. Tinstar Joplin was standing in the middle of the floor, a big-bodied ex-yeg with inordinately thick shoulders and an expressionless horse face. Beyond him, Kilcourse sat, dangling one leg from the corner of a table, alertness hiding behind an amused half-smile on his handsome, dark face. On the other side of a room, a girl whom I knew for Jeanie Delano sat on the arm of a big leather chair, and the poet hadn't exaggerated when he told me she was beautiful. "'You,' Joplin grunted disgustedly as soon as he recognized me. "'What the hell do you want?' "'What do you got?' My mind wasn't on this kind of repartee, however. I was studying the girl. There was something vaguely familiar about her. 
but I couldn't place her. Perhaps I hadn't seen her before. Perhaps much looking at the picture Pangburn had given me was responsible for my feeling of recognition. Pictures will do that. Meanwhile, Joplin had said, Time to waste is one thing I ain't got. And I had said, If you'd saved up all the time different judges have given you, you'd have plenty. I had seen the girl somewhere before. She was a slender girl, in a glistening blue gown that exhibited a generous spread of front, back, and arms that were worth showing. She had a mass of dark brown hair above an oval face of the color that pink ought to be. Her eyes were wide-set and of a gray shade that wasn't altogether unlike the shadows on polished silver that the poet had compared them to. I studied the girl, and she looked back at me with level eyes, and still I couldn't place her. Kilcorse sat dangling a leg from the table corner. Joplin grew impatient. "'Will you stop gandering at the girl and tell me what you want of me?' he growled. The girl smiled then, a mocking smile that bared the edges of razor-sharp little animal teeth, and with the smile I knew her. Her hair and skin had fooled me. The last time I had seen her, the only time I had seen her before, her face had been marble white, and her hair had been short and the color of fire. She and an older woman and three men and I had played hide-and-seek one evening in a house in Turk Street over a matter of the murder of a bank messenger and the theft of a hundred thousand dollars' worth of liberty bonds. Through her intriguing, three of her accomplices had died that evening, and the fourth, the Chinese, had eventually gone to the gallows of Folsom Prison. Her name had been Elvira then, and since her escape from the house that night, we had been fruitlessly hunting her from border to border and beyond. Recognition must have shown in my eyes, in spite of the effort I made to keep them blank, for swift as a snake she had left the arm of the chair and was coming forward, her eyes more steel than silver. I put my gun in sight. Joplin took a half-step toward me. "'What's the idea?' he barked. Kilcorse slid off the table, and one of his thick, dark hands hovered over his necktie. "'This is the idea,' I told him. "'I want the girl for a murder a couple of months back, and maybe, I'm not sure, for tonight's. Anyway, I'm—' The snapping of a light switch behind me, and the room went black. I moved, not caring where I went, so long as I got away from where I had been when the lights went out. My back touched a wall, and I stopped, crouching low. "'Quick, kid!' a hoarse whisper that came from where I thought the door should be. But both of the room's doors, I thought, were closed and could hardly be opened without showing gray rectangles. People moved in the blackness, but none got between me and the lighter square of windows. Something clicked softly in front of me. Too thin a click for the cocking of a gun, but it could have been the opening of a spring knife, and I remembered that Tin Star Joplin had a fondness for that weapon. "'Let's go, let's go!' a harsh whisper that cut through the dark like a blow. Sounds of motion, muffled, indistinguishable. One sound not far away. Abruptly, a strong hand clamped one of my shoulders, a hard-muscled body strained against me. I stabbed out with my gun and heard a grunt. The hand moved up my shoulder, toward my throat. I snapped up a knee and heard another grunt. A burning point ran down my side. 
I stabbed again with my gun, pulled it back until the muzzle was clear of the soft obstacle that had stopped it, and squeezed the trigger. The crash of the shot. Joplin's voice in my ear, a curiously matter-of-fact voice. God damn, that got me. Fifteen. I spun away from him then, toward where I saw the dim yellow of an open door. I had heard no sounds of departure, I had been too busy, but I knew that Joplin had tied into me while the others made their getaway. Nobody was in sight as I jumped, slid, tumbled down the steps any number at a time. A waiter got in my way as I plunged toward the dance floor. I don't know whether his interference was intentional or not. I didn't ask. I slammed the flat of my gun in his face and went on. Once I jumped a leg that came out to trip me, and at the outer door I had to smear another face. Then I was out in the semicircular driveway, from one end of which a red taillight was turning east into the country road. While I sprinted for Axford's car, I noticed that Pangburn's body had been removed. A few people still stood around the spot where he had lain, and they gaped at me now with open mouths. The car was as Axford had left it, with idling engine. I swung it through a flower bed and pointed it east on the public road. Five minutes later, I picked up the red point of a taillight again. The car under me had more power than I would ever need, more than I would have known how to handle. I don't know how fast the one ahead was going, but I closed in as if it had been standing still. A mile and a half, or perhaps two. Suddenly a man was in the road ahead, a little beyond the reach of my lights. The lights caught him, and I saw that it was Porky Grout. Porky Grout, standing, facing me in the middle of the road, the dull metal of an automatic in each hand. The guns in his hand seemed to glow dimly red and then go dark in the glare of my headlights, glow and then go dark like two bulbs in an automatic electric sign. The windshield fell apart around me. Porky Grout, the informant whose name was a synonym for cowardice the full length of the Pacific coast, stood in the center of the road shooting at a metal comet that rushed down upon him. I didn't see the end. I confess frankly that I shut my eyes when his set white face showed close over my radiator. The metal monster under me trembled, not very much, and the road ahead was empty, except for the fleeting red light. My windshield was gone. The wind tore at my uncovered hair and brought tears to my squinted-up eyes. Presently I found that I was talking to myself, saying, "'That was Porky! That was Porky!' It was an amazing fact. It was no surprise that he had double-crossed me. That was to be expected. And for to him have crept up the stairs behind me and turned off the lights wasn't astonishing. But for him to have stood straight up and died. An orange streak from the car ahead cut off my wonderment. The bullet didn't come near me. It isn't easy to shoot accurately from one moving car into another. But at the pace I was going, it wouldn't be long before I was close enough for good shooting. I turned on the searchlight above the dashboard. It didn't quite reach the car ahead, but it enabled me to see that the girl was driving, while Kilcore sat screwed around beside her, facing me. The car was a yellow roadster. I eased up a little. In a duel with Kilcore's here, I would have been at a disadvantage, since I would have had to drive as well as shoot. My best play seemed to be to hold my distance until we reached a town, as we inevitably must. It wasn't midnight yet, there would be people on the streets of any town, and policemen. Then I could close in with a better chance of coming off on top. A few miles of this, and my prey tumbled to my plan. The yellow roadster slowed down, wavered, and came to rest with its length across the road. 
Kilcourse and the girl were out immediately and crouching in the road on the far side of their barricade. I was tempted to drive pell-mell into them, but it was a weak temptation, and when its short life had passed, I put on the brakes and stopped. Then I fiddled with my searchlight until it bore full upon the roadster. A flash came from somewhere near the roadster's wheels, and the searchlight shook violently, but the glass wasn't touched. It would be their first target, of course, and crouching in my car waiting for the bullet that would smash the lens, I took off my shoes and overcoat. The third bullet ruined the light. I switched off the other lights, jumped to the road, and when I stopped running I was squatting down against the near side of the yellow roadster. As easy and safe a trick as can be imagined. The girl and Kilcourse had been looking into the glare of a powerful light. When that light suddenly died, and the weaker ones around it went too, they were left in pitch, unseeing blackness, which must last for the minute or longer that their eyes would need to readjust themselves to the gray-black of the night. My stockinged feet had made no sound on the macadam road, and now there was only a roadster between us, and I knew it, and they didn't. From near the radiator, Kilcourse spoke softly. I'm going to try to knock him off from the ditch. Take a shot at him now and then to keep him busy. I can't see him, the girl protested. Your eyes will be all right in a second. Take a shot at the car anyway. I moved toward the radiator as the girl's pistol barked at the empty touring car. Kilcourse, on hands and knees, was working his way toward the ditch that ran along the south side of the road. I gathered my legs under me, intent upon a spring and a blow with my gun upon the back of his head. I didn't want to kill him, but I wanted to put him out of the way, quick. I'd have the girl to take care of, and she was at least as dangerous as he. As I tensed for the spring, Kilcourse, guided perhaps by some instinct of the hunted, turned his head and saw me, saw a threatening shadow. Instead of jumping, I fired. I didn't look to see whether I'd hit him or not. At that range, there was little likelihood of missing. I bent double and slipped back to the rear of the roadster, keeping on my side of it. Then I waited. The girl did what I would perhaps have done in her place. She didn't shoot or move toward the place the shot had come from. She thought I had forestalled Kilcourse in using the ditch and that my next play would be to circle around behind her. To offset this, she moved around the rear of the roadster so that she could ambush me from the side nearest Axford's car. Thus it was that she came creeping around the corner and poked her delicately chiseled nose plunk into the muzzle of the gun that I held ready for her. She gave a little scream. Women aren't always reasonable. They are prone to disregard trifles like guns held upon them. So I grabbed her gun hand, which was fortunate for me. As my hand closed around the weapon, she pulled the trigger, catching a chunk of my forefinger between hammer and frame. I twisted the gun out of her hand, released my finger. But she wasn't done yet. With me standing there holding a gun not four inches from her body, she turned and bolted off toward where a clump of trees made a jet-black blot to the north. When I recovered from my surprise at this amateurish procedure, I stuck both her gun and mine in my pockets and set out after her, tearing the soles of my feet at every step. She was trying to get over a wire fence when I caught her. 16. Stop playing, will you? I said crossly, as I set the fingers of my left hand around her wrist, started to lead her back to the roadster. This is a serious business. Don't be so childish. You are hurting my arm. I knew I wasn't hurting her arm, and I knew this girl for the direct cause of four or perhaps five deaths. Yet I loosened my grip on her wrist until it wasn't much more than a friendly clasp. 
She went back willingly enough to the roadster, where, still holding her wrist, I switched on the lights. Kilcourse lay just beneath the headlight's glare, huddled on his face with one knee drawn up under him. I put the girl squarely in the line of light. "'Now stand there,' I said, "'and behave. The first break you make, I'm going to shoot a leg out from under you.' And I meant it. I found Kilcourse's gun, pocketed it, and knelt beside him. He was dead with a bullet hole above his collarbone. "'Is he?' her mouth trembled. Yes. She looked down at him and shivered a little. Poor fag, she whispered. I've gone on record as saying that this girl was beautiful. And standing there in the dazzling white of the headlights, she was more than that. She was a thing to start crazy thoughts. Even in the head of an unimaginative middle-aged thief-catcher, she was... Anyway, I suppose that's why I scowled at her and said... Yes, poor fag, and poor hook, and poor tie, and poor kind of a Los Angeles bank messenger, and poor Burke, calling the roll, so far as I knew it, of men who had died loving her. She didn't flare up. Her big gray eyes lifted, and she looked at me with a gaze that I couldn't fathom, and her lovely oval face under the mass of brown hair, which I knew was phony, was sad. I suppose you do think she began. But I had had enough of this. I was uncomfortable along the spine. Come on, I said. We'll leave Kilcourse and the roadster here for the present. She said nothing, but went with me to Axford's big machine and sat in silence while I laced my shoes. I found a robe on the back seat and gave it to her. Better wrap this around your shoulders. The windshield is gone. It'll be cool. She followed my suggestion without a word, but when I had edged our vehicle around the rear of the roadster and had straightened out in the road again, going east, she laid a hand on my arm. Aren't we going back to the White Shack? No. Redwood City. The county jail. A mile, perhaps, during which without looking at her I knew she was studying my rather lumpy profile. Then her hand was on my forearm again, and she was leaning toward me so that her breath was warm against my cheek. Will you stop for a minute? There's something, some things I want to tell you. I brought the car to a halt in a cleared space of hard soil off to one side of the road and screwed myself a little around in the seat to face her more directly. Before you start, I told her, I want you to understand that we stay here for just so long as you talk about the Pangburn affair. When you get off on any other line, then we finish our trip to Redwood City. Aren't you even interested in the Los Angeles affair? No, that's closed. You and Hook Rorden and Tai Chun Tao and the quarries were equally responsible for the messenger's death, even if Hook did the actual killing. Hook and the quarries passed out the night we had our party at Turk Street. Tai was hanged last month. Now I've got you. We had enough evidence to swing the Chinese and we've got even more against you. That is done, finished, completed. If you want to tell me anything about Pangburn's death, I'll listen. Otherwise, I reached for the self-starter. A pressure of her fingers on my arm stopped me. I do want to tell you about it, she said earnestly. I want you to know the truth about it. You'll take me to Redwood City, I know. Don't think that I expect that I have any foolish hopes. But I'd like you to know the truth about this thing. 
I don't know why I should care, especially what you think, but... Her voice dwindled off to nothing. Seventeen. Then she began to talk very rapidly, as people talk when they fear interruptions before their stories are told. And she sat leaning slightly forward so that her beautiful oval face was very close to mine. After I ran out of the Turk Street house that night, while you were struggling with Ty, my intention was to get away from San Francisco. I had a couple of thousand dollars, enough to carry me any place. Then I thought that going away would be what you people would expect me to do, and that the safest thing for me to do would be to stay right here. It isn't hard for a woman to change her appearance. I had bobbed red hair, white skin, and wore gay clothes. I simply dyed my hairs, bought these transformations to make it look long, put color on my face, and bought some dark clothes. Then I took an apartment on Ashbury Avenue under the name of Jeanie Delano, and I was an altogether different person. But while I knew I was perfectly safe from recognition anywhere, I felt more comfortable staying indoors for a while, and to pass the time, I read a good deal. That's how I happened to run across Burke's book. Do you read poetry? I shook my head. An automobile going down toward Half Moon Bay came into sight just then, the first one we'd seen since we left the white shack. She waited until it had passed before she went on, still talking rapidly. Burke wasn't a genius, of course, but there was something about some of his things that something that got inside me. I wrote him a little note, telling him how much I had enjoyed those things, and sent it to his publishers. A few days later, I had a note from Burke, and I learned that he lived in San Francisco. I hadn't known that. We exchanged several notes, and then he asked if he could call, and we met. I don't know whether I was in love with him or not. Even at first I did like him, and between the ardor of his love for me and the flattery of having a fairly well-known poet for a suitor, I really thought that I loved him. I promised to marry him. I hadn't told him anything about myself, though now I know that it wouldn't have made any difference to him. But I was afraid to tell him the truth, and I wouldn't lie to him, so I told him nothing. Then Thag Kilcourse saw me one day in the street and knew me in spite of my new hair, complexion, and clothes. Thag hadn't much brains, but he had eyes that could see through anything. I don't blame Thag. He acted according to his code. He came up to my apartment, having followed me home, and I told him that I was going to marry Burke and be a respectable housewife. That was dumb of me. Fag was square. If I had told him that I was ribbing Burke up for a trimming, Fag would have let me alone, would have kept his hands off. But when I told him that I was through with the graft, had gone queer, that made me his meat. You know how crooks are. Everyone in the world is either a fellow crook or a prospective victim. So if I was no longer a crook, then Fag considered me fair game. He learned about Burke's family connections, and then he put it up to me. Twenty thousand dollars, or he'd turn me up. He knew about the Los Angeles job, and he knew how badly I was wanted. I was up against it then. I knew I couldn't hide from Fag or run away from him. I told Burke that I had to have twenty thousand dollars. I didn't think he had that much, but I thought he could get it. Three days later, he gave me a check for it. I didn't know at the time how he had raised it, but it wouldn't have mattered if I had known. I had to have it. But that night he told me where he got the money. He had forged his brother-in-law's signature. 
He told me because, after thinking it over, he was afraid that when the forgery was discovered, I would be caught with him and considered equally guilty. I'm rotten in spots, but I wasn't rotten enough to let him put himself in the pen for me without knowing what it was all about. I told him the whole story. He didn't bat an eye. He insisted that the money be paid Kilcourse so that I would be safe, and began to plan for my further safety. Burke was confident that his brother-in-law wouldn't send him over for forgery, but to be on the safe side, he insisted that I move and change my name again and lay low until we knew how Axford was going to take it. But that night, after he had gone, I made some plans of my own. I did like Burke. I liked him too much to let him be the goat without trying to save him, and I didn't have a great deal of faith in Axford's kindness. This was the second of the month. Barring accidents, Axford wouldn't discover the forgery until he got his cancelled checks early the following month. That gave me practically a month to work in. The next day I drew all my money out of the bank and sent Burke a letter, saying that I had been called to Baltimore, and I laid a clear trail to Baltimore, with baggage and letters and all, which a pal there took care of for me. Then I went down to Joplin's and got him to put me up. I let Fag know I was there, and when he came down I told him I expected to have the money for him in a day or two. He came down nearly every day after that, and I installed him from day to day, and each time it got easier. But my time was getting short. Pretty soon Burke's letters would be coming back from the phony address I had given him, and I wanted to be on hand to keep him from doing anything foolish. And I didn't want to get in touch with him until I could give him the 20000 so he could square the forgery before Axford learned of it from his cancelled checks. Fag was getting easier and easier to handle, but I still didn't have him where I wanted him. He wasn't willing to give up the $20,000, which I was, of course, holding all this time, until I promised to stick with him for good. And I still thought I was in love with Burke, and I didn't want to tie myself up with Fag even for a little while. Then Burke saw me on the street one Sunday night. I was careless, and drove into the city in Joplin's Roadster, the one back there. And as luck would have it, Burke saw me. I told him the truth, the whole truth, and he told me that he had just hired a private detective to find me. He was like a child in some ways. It hadn't occurred to him that the sleuth would dig up anything about the money, but I knew the forged check would be found in a day or two at the most. I knew it. When I told Burke that, he went to pieces. All his faith in his brother-in-law's forgiveness went. I couldn't leave him the way he was. He'd have babbled the whole thing to the first person he met. So I brought him back to Joplin's with me. My idea was to hold him there for a few days until we could see how things were going. If nothing appeared in the papers about the check, then we could take it for granted that Axford had hushed the matter up and Burke could go home and try to square himself. On the other hand, if the papers got the whole story then Burke would have to look for a permanent hiding place, and so would I. Tuesday evenings and Wednesday mornings papers were full of the news of his disappearance, but nothing was said about the check. That looked good, but we waited another day for good measure. Thag Kilcourse was in on the game by this time, of course, and I had to pass over the $20,000, but I still had hopes of getting it, or most of it, back, so I continued to string him along. I had a hard time keeping him off Burke, though, because he had begun to think that he had some sort of right to me, and jealousy made him wicked. But I got Tinstar to throw a scare into him, and I thought Burke was safe. 
Tonight, one of Tin Star's men came up and told us that a man named Porky Grout, who had been hanging around the place for a couple of nights, had made a couple of cracks that might mean he was interested in us. Grout was pointed out to me, and I took a chance on showing myself in the public part of the place and sat at a table close to his. He was plain rat, as I guess you know, and in less than five minutes I had him at my table, and half an hour later I knew that he had tipped you off that Burke and I were at the White Shack. He didn't tell me this all right out, but he told me more than enough for me to guess the rest. I went up and told the others. Fag was for killing both Grout and Burke right away, but I talked him out of it. That wouldn't help us any, and I had Grout where he would jump in the ocean for me. I thought I had Fag convinced, but we finally decided that Burke and I would take the roadster and leave, and that when you got here Porky Grout was to pretend he was hopped up and point out a man and a woman, any who happened to be handy, as the ones he had taken for us. I stopped to get a cloak and gloves, and Burke went on out to the car alone, and Fag shot him. I didn't know he was going to. I wouldn't have let him. Please believe that. I wasn't as much in love with Burke as I had thought, but please believe that after all he had done for me I wouldn't have let them hurt him. After that it was a case of stick with the others, whether I liked it or not, and I stuck. We ripped Grout to tell you that all three of us were on the back porch when Burke was killed, and we had any number of others primed with the same story. Then you came up and recognized me. Just my luck that it had to be you, the only detective in San Francisco who knew me. You know the rest, how Porky Grout came out behind you and turned off the lights, and Joplin held you while we ran for the car. And then, when you closed in on us, Grout offered to stand you off while we got clear and now. 18. Her voice died, and she shivered a little. The robe I had given her had fallen away from her white shoulders. Whether or not it was because she was so close against my shoulder, I shivered too. And my fingers, fumbling into my pocket for a cigarette, brought it out, twisted and mashed. That's all there is to the part you promised to listen to, she said softly, her face turned half away. I wanted you to know. You're a hard man, but somehow I... I cleared my throat and the hand that held the mangled cigarette was suddenly steady. "'Now don't be crude, sister,' I said. "'Your work has been too smooth so far to be spoiled by rough stuff now.' She laughed, a brief laugh that was bitter and reckless, just a little weary. And she thrust her face still closer to mine, and the gray eyes were soft and placid. "'Little fat detective whose name I don't know. Her voice had a tired huskiness in it, and a tired mockery. You think I am playing a part, don't you? You think I am playing for liberty. Perhaps I am. I certainly would take it if it were offered me. But men have thought me beautiful, and I have played with them. Women are like that. Men have loved me, and doing what I liked with them, I have found men contemptible. And then comes this little fat detective, whose name I don't know, and he acts as if I were a hag, an old squaw. Can I help then being piqued into some sort of feeling for him? Women are like that. Am I so homely that any man has a right to look at me without even interest? Am I ugly? 
I shook my head. You're quite pretty, I said, struggling to keep my voice as casual as the words. You beast, she spat, and then her smile grew gentle again. And yet, it is because of that attitude that I sit here and turn myself inside out for you. If you were to take me in your arms and hold me close to the chest that I am already leaning against, and if you were to tell me that there is no jail ahead for me just now, I would be glad, of course. But though for a while you might hold me, you would then be only one of the men with which I am familiar, men who love and are used and are succeeded by other men. But because you do none of these things, because you are a wooden block of a man, I find myself wanting you. Would I tell you this, little fat detective, if I were playing a game? I grunted noncommittally and forcibly restrained my tongue from running out to moisten my dry lips. I'm going to this jail tonight. If you were the same hard man who has goaded me into whining love into his uncaring ears, but before that can I have one wholehearted assurance that you think me a little more than quite pretty? Or at least a hint that if I were not a prisoner, your pulse might beat a little faster when I touch you. I'm going to this jail for a long while, perhaps to the gallows. Can't I take my vanity there, not quite in tatters, to keep me company? Can't you do some slight thing to keep me from the afterthought of having bleated all this out to a man who was simply bored? Her lids had come down half over the silver-gray eyes. Her head had tilted back so far that a little pulse showed throbbing in her white throat. Her lips were motionless over slightly parted teeth as the last words had left them. My fingers went deep into the soft white flesh of her shoulders. Her head went further back, her eyes closed. One hand came to my shoulder. "'You're beautiful as all hell!' I shouted crazily into her face and flung her against the door. It seemed an hour that I fumbled with starter and gears before I had the car back on the road and thundering toward the San Mateo County Jail. The girl had straightened herself up in the seat again and sat huddled within the robe I had given her. I squinted straight ahead into the wind that tore at my face and hair. In the absence of the windshield took my thoughts back to Porky Grout. Porky Grout, whose yellowness was notorious from Seattle to San Diego, standing rigidly in the path of a charging metal monster with an inadequate pistol in each hand. She had done that to Porky Grout, this woman beside me. She had done that to Porky Grout, and he hadn't even been human. A slimy reptile whose highest thought had been a skinful of dope had gone grimly to death that she might get away. She, this woman whose shoulders I had gripped, whose mouth had been close under mine. I let the car out another notch, holding the road somehow. We went through a town, a scurrying of pedestrians for safety, surprised faces staring at us, street lights glistening on the moisture the wind had whipped from my eyes. I passed blindly by the road I wanted, circled back to it, and we were out in the country again. 19. At the foot of a long, shallow hill, I applied the brakes and we snapped to motionlessness. I thrust my face close to the girls. Furthermore, you are a liar! I knew I was shouting foolishly, but I was powerless to lower my voice. Pangbury never put Axford's name on that check. 
He never knew anything about it. You got in with him because you knew his brother-in-law was a millionaire. You pumped him, finding out everything he knew about his brother-in-law's account at the Golden Gate Trust. You stole Pangburn's bank book. It wasn't in his room when I searched it, and deposited the forged Axford check to his credit, knowing that under those circumstances the check wouldn't be questioned. The next day you took Pangburn into the bank, saying you were going to make a deposit. You took him in because with him standing beside you, the check to which his signature had been forged wouldn't be questioned. You knew that, being a gentleman, he'd take pains not to see what you were depositing. Then you framed the Baltimore trip. He told the truth to me, the truth so far as he knew it. Then you met him Sunday night, maybe accidentally, maybe not. Anyway, you took him down to Joplin's, giving him some wild yarn that he would swallow, and it would persuade him to stay there for a few days. That wasn't hard, since he didn't know anything about either of the $20,000 checks. You and your pal Kilcourse knew that if Pangburn disappeared, nobody would ever know that he hadn't forged the Axford check, and nobody would ever suspect that the second check was phony. You'd have killed him quietly. But when Porky tipped you off that I was on my way down, you had to move quick, so you shot him down. That's the truth of it, I yelled. All this while she had watched me with wide gray eyes that were calm and tender, but now they clouded a little, and a pucker of pain drew her brows together. I yanked my head away and got the car in motion. Just before we swept into Redwood City, one of her hands came up to my forearm, rested there for a second, patted the arm twice, and withdrew. I didn't look at her, nor, I think, did she look at me while she was being booked. She gave her name as Jeanie Delano and refused to make any statement until she had seen an attorney. It all took a very few minutes. As she was being led away, she stopped and asked if she might speak privately with me. We went together to a far corner of the room. She put her mouth close to my ear so that her breath was warm again on my cheek as it had been in the car, and whispered the vilest epithet of which the English language is capable. Then she walked out to her cell. End of The Girl with the Silver Eyes, Part 2